They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Let's do a little word association, or phrase association. What do you think of, or who do you think of, when I say, I am the greatest? Most of us of a certain age and above would almost immediately say Muhammad Ali. Boy, could that guy trash talk. You know, I know that part of it is just part of the culture of boxing and combat sports in general, but it's never quite sat right with me. See, I am a Scandinavian from Minnesota, and that kind of bragging will get you shunned in Norwegian circles. It doesn't mean it doesn't always happen. I saw a guy with a hat once that said, it's hard to be humble when you're Norwegian. <laughs> Either way, Ali's bragging and trash talk are not my cup of tea, regardless of what you think about him as a boxer or as a person. And this brings us to our disciples in our gospel reading today. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I love the 12 apostles, well, 11 of them anyway. Judas Iscariot didn't work out so well. Much like the Vikings kicker that they drafted this year. <laughs> so Jesus makes his second passion prediction. And they pretend like they understand it. He says he's going to be killed and rise again on the third day. They act like they understand, but they don't. And they're too scared to ask him about it. Does that ever happen to you? Do you sometimes wish you could just pump the brakes in one of our conversations here at church and declare, you lost me. <laughs> Can you fill me in on what you mean? Could you back up for a second? Please. I say this in all earnestness and honesty. Don't hesitate to ask crucial questions. This is why we're here. This is why I'm here. If something doesn't make sense in a sermon or in a worship service, grab me afterward and we'll chat or shoot me an email, a text, a phone call, whatever it may be. It's not a bother. It's what we do. What we call the Great Commission is Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where he says, As you are going, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
and then teaching them to take hold of everything that I've instructed you. After they arrived at Capernaum, which is really Jesus' home base, he asked the disciples a tough question. What were you arguing about on the way? You know these kinds of questions. Like when a parent asks their teenager, is there anything that you want to tell me? <laughs> Knowing full well what they did. They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And it wasn't a mystery to Jesus. Now this is right after what we call the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus and get a glimpse of him in his true glory. One of the most powerful moments they'd ever experienced in their lives. They saw Jesus in his true state, and they heard the Father's voice out loud. Not a very common occurrence. Did they think that this was some po point of pride for them? This is also right after Jesus declared to them where his mission was headed. They were changing gears. So far he's been healing and casting out demons and teaching. And now he shifts his focus to Jerusalem. Where he will suffer, die, and rise. So after these things, what do you think, Peter? How about you, John? James? Bueller? Bueller? You've seen who I am, and you've heard the Father declare it. What do you think? I'm going to go up to Jerusalem so I can die. Sound like a plan? No thanks, Jesus. We'd rather discuss which one of us is the greatest. We're busy. This demonstrates two very different roads, two different religions. One of them is obsessed with glory. Who is the most important? This reminds me of a line from Weird Al Yankovic, of all people, in his parody of Coolio's early 90s hit, Gangster's Paradise, popularized by the movie Dangerous Minds. Well, Weird Al's rendition is called Amish Paradise, and it describes the life of an Amish man. You think you're really righteous? You think you're pure in heart? Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art. There is a way that is obsessed with glory and obsessed with self. We often call this the theology of glory. This road actually leads away from God in the name of good works, moral perfection, visible righteousness, and pride. It is the way that seems to be the most religious, the most sincere, but in reality, it is a way that leads only to death. The road to the cross is a road that leads to life through the death of Jesus. The disciples here are obsessed with their own personal greatness to the extent that they miss the entire point of what Jesus came to do, to die, to rise and in so doing, to save the world. Jesus is working toward the goal of giving his life, losing his life, making himself nothing to save the world. And meanwhile, the disciples are trying to figure out the pecking order of the kingdom. Isn't this kind of how it is for everyone? 
Who really wants all of this death and resurrection talk? People say, give us practical wisdom, tips for a better marriage, better parenting, whatever. You're bumming us out with all that death talk. The truth is, our sinful selves and the unbelieving world around us, they don't want a dead and risen Jesus. We want a power Jesus. We want a winner Jesus. We want a Jesus who can show us the path to success and glory. We'd like a Jesus that fits our goals, whether that's Republican Jesus or politically correct Jesus or vegan Jesus, but that is not the Jesus that we get. We're wired this way from the get-go. It's drilled into us even in an age of participation trophies and scoreless soccer games. Great is good, higher is better, gold medals are the only ones worth winning. You see, the gold medalist pedestal is higher than everyone else. A much better vantage point to look down on all the losers. We want to be winners so that we can look down on losers. So maybe, this is just a guess, maybe Peter, James, and John on their way down the Mount of Transfiguration are trying to figure out their rankings before they meet up with the nine losers that didn't get invited. Who was going to be in charge? Who is the greatest? But Jesus' plan upsets the apple cart. It's not about power. It's about weakness. It's not glory we're talking about here, not at least in the way that human beings define glory. It's a cross. There weren't going to be three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Peter suggested. They weren't going to go on a camping trip together. Jesus' power and glory were not the point of his incarnation, his mission, his ministry. It was his love. Love on display in the suffering and the agony of the cross. To make his point, Jesus picks up a little child and puts him right there in the middle of them. You want to see greatness? This is what greatness looks like. In contrast to all of the crap that you guys have been talking about, this little child, this is what greatness is. This is what's truly important. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And in receiving me receives the Father who sent me. We don't totally grasp what this means in the 21st century world because in contrast to the first century, we idolize childhood today. We love little kids, at least most of us, most kids. There's a solid argument that states that the Germans invented childhood as we know it in the Middle Ages. Before that, children were the least, the lesser, essentially worthless. They were dependent on help for everything. They took up time. They were expensive. They didn't contribute anything until they were old enough to work like everybody else. In the ancient world, kids couldn't grow up fast enough. And considering mortality rates for children, 
They were essentially just a really expensive gamble. You pour time and money into them, and they may or may not grow up to contribute anything to the family. And that is exactly why Jesus uses a child as his example. To bend down, to receive this little child in the name of Jesus is to receive the one who became a child for our sake. In the first century connotation of childhood, not in the 21st century. Jesus who was everything, all the power of the universe who became the least, the nothing, the child. Who, came, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. And was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus' birth, Jesus' childhood was for our salvation and so was his death. You see, the babe of Bethlehem is also the man of sorrows. The suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah foretold. Do you want to become great in the kingdom of God? Then you must become small and insignificant. Being a winner first means becoming a loser. Ted Turner of Turner Broadcasting fame once declared that Christianity is for losers. And he's not wrong. The baptized children are declared children of God. All of us who are baptized are children of God. Like that little child in the middle of the disciples in our passage, we too are utterly helpless, needy, totally dependent on God's mercy. To be a child of God means losing our lives in order to have them saved by Jesus. Becoming nothing so that Christ is everything. Dying in order to rise. Muhammad Ali was one heck of a boxer, but that's not greatness. That baby in the manger, this worthless little child that can't do anything for itself, sleeping in an animal's feeding trough, that's greatness. That man hanging dead upon that cross, that is true greatness. St. Paul says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs, says Paul. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach and proclaim Christ and him crucified, which is a stumbling block, a scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are being saved, those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He continues, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Luther Boldly declared about 500 years ago this year, Crux sola est nostra theologia. The cross alone is our theology. The cross is what we believe, teach, and confess about God. 
It's not glamorous. Plenty of Lutherans shiver, a very un-Lutheran shiver, at the sight of a crucifix in a Lutheran church. That's too Catholic. We'd rather not deal with that cross and blood stuff. He's risen. It's over and done with, we think. Move on. Let's get to the part about how our life will be better with Jesus. Perhaps in this line of reasoning, we should have empty mangers in our, nanger, in our nativity scene, too. Because after all, Jesus grew up and moved on from that stable. No. The hard and honest truth is that while plenty of people were crucified, at one time it was believed that in Rome and in Jerusalem and areas of Roman influence, there were crosses two miles in every direction out of the city on both sides of the road. Plenty of people were crucified. It is the very particular crucifixion of a very particular person. The Word of God made flesh. The Son of God for you and your salvation crucified. He's the greatest. And you are His. Amen. Now may the peace of our God, which surpasses all of our own human understanding and wisdom, keep your hearts and your minds in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you rise as we confess that faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed? <laughs>